Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Urinary incontinence isn't an inevitable consequence of aging, and most people with guidance from their doctor can manage their symptoms. Inability to control the flow. Urinary incontinence, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc, medical information based on science, built on trust. I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger, your Prairie Doc host. Tonight, we will be discussing urinary incontinence. Thank you for joining us. In the studio this evening on the campus of South Dakota State University in Brookings is Dr. Joseph Toom and Dr. Lauren Wood from Urology Associates. Welcome. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you. Um, so, husband-wife team, duo of right. urologists, here tonight, so thanks for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Where are you from? How long have you been in South Dakota? And um, how, what was your path through urology? Sure, so I grew up in Virginia. Yeah. I went to UVA for undergrad and medical school. Absolutely hated the cold weather, said I'm never doing this again. <laughs> Moved to Los Angeles where I thought I'd spend the rest of my life after I did my training at Cedars-Sinai. Um, ended up doing a two-year fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery met Joe while we were there who brought me back to South Dakota. So I just bought a warm coat and... <laughs> and she does great. She's uh, turned into a hardy Midwestern. It's, well, it's, it's like a lot colder than Virginia probably. Yeah. It is, it is, but, um, but we love it. It's home yeah. and so we've been here for five years now. I practice mm -hmm. at Urology Specialists. Yeah, yeah and um, so I grew up in Sioux Falls. Right. Um, I always loved South Dakota, kind of always knew I'd come back. I mm -hmm. did my undergrad at the University of Sioux Falls, and I went to Northwestern in Chicago for med school. Mm -hmm. uh, went to Cedars-Sinai for my urology residency, where I met my beautiful wife, and somehow conned her into moving back to <laughs> South Dakota. And so far, five years in, happily ever after. But yeah. as long as I keep my clothes off the floor, things go <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good tip, good tip. So we're gonna talk about, I mean, we'll talk about lots of urology stuff, but we'll focus on incontinence, I guess, first. So let's dive in a little bit. What, let's define urinary incontinence. Okay, so what is urinary incontinence? I feel like I get asked about it so much as a general internist, sure. and I say, well, it's really common, but it's not normal, right? So like, what is urinary yeah, incontinence? Yeah, no, you couldn't have said it better. Um, urinary incontinence is the involuntary loss of urine. So mm -hmm. leaking urine without your permission. Um, couple of main types. One, you have the overactive bladder or urgency incontinence. I think of that as the gotta go, gotta go. You know, you get to your front door, you're turning the key, you can't get into your house mm -hmm. fast enough. Um, so that's one subtype. And then the other main type that we treat is called stress incontinence. Mm -hmm. Not stress like, I'm so stressed out, but um, mainly abdominal pressure. So leaking with coughing, laughing, sneezing, exercise, bending, lifting, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so what's what's frustrating for a lot of people is that you can have both of these things. Sure. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there's not one size fits all treatment for both of these problems, but they are both very treatable. Maybe not curable, maybe mm -hmm. not 100% improvement, 
but it's a quality of life problem and it really is something that, that you shouldn't have to live with because just like you said, while it's very common, it's not normal. Right, right. Um, and so you talked about a couple of the common types. Do we see different presentations in women and men? I guess let's talk a little Absolutely, bit about that. Like how, yeah. what, what, so, what's different in men or what else contributes in men? Well, you can have both of them. Sure. I mean, or I mean, I should say you have stress incontinence, urge incontinence. Mm -hmm. Usually we kind of think of that in women as being the more common mm -hmm. area or more, more common sex that it has to deal with it, but it is actually very common in men as well. I think we probably see in urge incontinence can manifest, especially in men who have uh, enlarged prostates. Mm -hmm. Frequently with enlarged prostates, we think of the obstructive symptoms of weak stream, starting and stopping a stream, mm -hmm. um, tough to get going, but actually the thing I, that brings guys into the office more is the irritative symptoms that come with uh, an enlarged prostate that the, the bladder over time is uh, making these accommodations to overcome this mm -hmm. large prostate and you get these spasms and so you get urge incontinence, uh, urgency, frequency, they're going or they're waking up all night and mm -hmm. those are the quality of life issues that ultimately finally brings them into either the internist office and then usually to our office to discuss what are the medical and surgical options to treat this. Uh, we do see stress incontinence in men, mm -hmm. especially in the patients who we've some, you know, treated for prostate cancer, sure. one of the common complications or um, consequence of that surgery is there can be some stress incontinence due to that prostate no longer sitting there, ch changing kind of the resistance pattern that the bladder encounters and leading to involuntary leakage of urine with cough, laugh, and sneeze. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a detailed history and assessment of that patient is important to f direct them in the right pathway. Yeah, but the prostate can be a big contributor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep, Sometimes exactly. fixing that. Yep, really it usually, you know, in um, voiding issues in men, mm -hmm. kind of, the prostate is almost always involved at some level. Mm -hmm. So, but just like, um, in women, you can have mixed presentations. Sure. There's also other things. Bladder cancer can cause irritative voiding sure. symptoms. Uh, urethral strictures uh, mm -hmm. can lead to an obstructive pattern. So there's the most common thing, but there's other reasons. And so that's why a good assessment is so important yeah. to um, point you down the right path. So I guess let's talk about that. How do we figure out what the problem is? There's all these different variables. It's not that sure. simple of an anatomic Right, well, just like with anything in medicine, you start by getting a good history, mm -hmm. physical exam, and then as urologists, the extension of that history and physical is a urinalysis and a post-void residual. So just a bladder ultrasound that shows how much is left over. You'd be surprised how many people come in and say, oh, I, I'm peeing all the time, and we check a bladder scan, mm -hmm. and they've got a liter in their bladder. It's right. like, well, you're actually in retention, which is a totally different problem. Yeah. Um, most of the time when I'm seeing women and they're explaining it to me, you can pretty much figure it out based on the history. If you're peeing every 30 minutes every hour, you're waking up several times at night, you can't make it to the bathroom, that's overactive bladder. If you say, I can't jump on the trampoline with my kids, when I have a bad cold, I leak all the time, that's your stress incontinence. And mm -hmm. then when you have mixed incontinence, that, that's both of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my job is a little easier than Joe's because I don't have to think about the prostate much. Right. Most of my patients are women, and so mm -hmm. their evaluation is more straightforward. You really don't need to do invasive testing or cystoscopies or urodynamics if you just get a good history. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we start with 
conservative things for treatment and mm -hmm. then just move on in a stepwise approach. And the most important thing is how bothered are you? Right. You can ask, you know, 10 women, are you leaking? And I bet at least three or four of them are going to say yes, but if they're not bothered, that's fine. Right. We don't have to do anything about it. That's but if right. you want to do mm -hmm. something, then we're here to help. Yeah. yeah, I think that is kind of the interesting thing mm -hmm. that is rewarding in our job is, for the most part, it is a quality of life issue. Mm -hmm. Now, once again, if this person is actually walking around with a liter in their bladder and it's just kind of a little bit here and there, right. well, that's an issue. Now we're thinking about, is this going to hurt your kidneys long term? But most of it, once we've ruled out the potentially harmful things, you know, they're emptying their bladder well, but it's a quality of life issue. And some guys, it doesn't bother them. Right. So if they can live with it, I can live with it as right. long as we've ruled out that this, you know, it's not putting their kidneys at harm's way. But it, it is. is a rewarding thing. And, you know, mm -hmm. to see guys go from, getting up five times a night to mm -hmm. one time a night, and you as an internist know yep. sleep is the cornerstone of so many. <laughs> I was gonna say that's 100% you know, what the, puts people over the edge in my practice is if they're and, not sleeping. And you know, you, and it's, there's such a cascading effect we see because mm -hmm. somebody's waking up five times while their sleep cycle's being disrupted. Now mm -hmm. they're less active in the day. They're not working out. They're not, mm -hmm. now they're gaining, they put on 20 pounds. Now they're mm -hmm. a little insulin resistant to diet. So it is kind of a downstream yeah. f effect that, you know, so the guys who are getting up a lot at night, I, those are the ones who, even if they're emptying, I do push them that we need to consider something to get this down because it's not just, you may be able to tolerate right. getting up at night, but what about these downstream consequences? Yeah. You know? One of the things I think of always is, especially as you get older and more frail, that limited mobility, you're waking mm -hmm. up all the time at night, you fall, you trip, you break a hip. Just, just more it's, chances yeah, to do it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Or even, you know, I see a lot of patients who become more socially isolated because mm -hmm. they don't want to go out for, for to sure. play cards or to have coffee because they're either going to be getting up the whole time or they're going to have an accident and embarrass themselves. They don't want to sit on a friend's couch or go see a right. movie. And so being able to give someone their quality of life back mm -hmm. and being able to get active mm -hmm. and and social, I think, is a huge part of it, too. That's rewarding. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's talk about, well, I, you know, I'm in a certain stage of life where I think <laughs> about how pregnancy and childbearing yes. has an impact <laughs> on this for women. Can you explain, like, why is that? Why does carrying a child Absolutely. lead to incontinence in so many women? Absolutely. So, you know, the rate of incontinence with a vaginal delivery is about twice that of a cesarean section. But any woman mm -hmm. who is pregnant for any amount of time can have urinary incontinence. And so early on in pregnancy, it's more the hormonal changes. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're five, six weeks pregnant, you don't have a bowling ball sitting on your pelvis yet. So it's not the pressure, it's just the hormonal issues. And that also is a factor later on. Um, obviously, as the baby is growing now, you do have all of that pressure. And if you go through with a vaginal delivery, those muscles and ligaments, everything is just stretched and things just aren't going to be the same again. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some women who never have issues right. and some who only have issues during pregnancy and then are fine after. Um, but even I've seen nuns who have incontinence, so it's not all attributed to pregnancy, sure. but mm -hmm. it certainly plays a major factor and I think probably why it's more common in women than men. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you recommend, like, if you see people really close postpartum, are there things that you can do Absolutely. About that? So we try not to operate on anyone too close after, sure. after delivery, mainly just because there's so much blood flow to the pelvis mm -hmm. and that surgery can be a lot more complicated, but also because there is room for healing and so you don't want to jump to conclusions. Um, pelvic floor physical therapy can be a great adjunct. Mm -hmm. I think if you've had three kids and you're in your 40s and you know I examine you and your urethra is very hypermobile, probably physical therapy is not going to take care of it. But if you're postpartum and things are still healing, I think that's a great time to use that resource. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. um, in your classic Kegel exercises. Sure. Uh, but they can, you know, they can only take you so far. Right. When the when the din when there's anatomic damage done. You can't kegel your way out of it, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish, but. Yeah, and so, I mean, I might see, I can think of a couple patients I've seen recently who are late in life and have been dealing with pretty major pelvic floor prolapse for decades. Yes. Like, so So tell, what what's prolapse? So, what does that mean? Yes, so prolapse are when the pelvic organs are descending mm -hmm. past normal or even falling out of the body. And so the uterus can prolapse after hysterectomy, the top of the vagina can prolapse, the bladder can fall, the rectum can bulge, and it is very often associated with pregnancy delivery and also hysterectomy. Sure. You know, I think of the uterus as kind of holding on to the mm -hmm. side of the pelvis, and then once you take those, those ligaments down in a hysterectomy, all of the abdominal contents are just gonna push there and so gravity takes over. Um, now, not every woman who has a hysterectomy has prolapse, mm -hmm. but it can present as a feeling of pressure or heaviness, like you're sitting on an mm -hmm. egg or a golf ball. Maybe when women are using the restroom and they go to wipe, they might feel something there. It's usually not painful, but it can mm -hmm. be very bothersome. And it can also cause some backache and pain. Mm -hmm. And so I see a lot of women who will do surgery and they go, oh my gosh, I had this like nagging low back pain forever and ever, and it got better after mm -hmm. surgery. And so I just, I just wish that more women knew they don't have to live like this. You don't have to live with prolapse or incontinence. And even if you don't want surgery, there are non-surgical treatments sure. like a pessary yeah, that we can use. Great. Well, and mm -hmm. I, you know, add in with, you know, Leakage now. There's, mm -hmm. you know, even office-based procedures oh, that we can do to help with Bulk that. Bulkamid has been revolutionary. Really, a major development yeah. in the urologic world. Great. We'll come back to that. Pelvic organ prolapse happens when the muscles and tissues supporting the pelvic organs become weak or loose. One way to support these organs is with a pessary. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower visits with a physician about what a pessary is. an OBGYN in Brookings who can help women who suffer through pelvic organ prolapse. Now, our pelvic organs lose the support structures over time and uh, that causes either the bladder or the uterus or the top of the vagina or the rectum to come down towards the opening through the vaginal opening. Dr. Abley sees women who prolapse usually after childbirth, but it can affect all women. She says women should come in if they feel pressure or a bulge near their vaginal area. Especially if it's coming outside of the vagina, uh, outside of the vaginal opening, then that would be a point that I would generally recommend something be done. Surgery is the best option, but a temporary option for women who have suffered prolapse is a pessary, which holds up the organs that have come down to the opening. That helps reduce those symptoms of a bulge or of uh, pressure uh, that people experience when they have this prolapse and uh, is something that is a non-surgical option to be able to manage those symptoms. How long an inserted pessary stays in depends on the patient as some can take their pessary out regularly while Dr. Abley sees some women who can't take theirs out on their own. Those I typically see every two to three months uh, to uh, take it out, clean it off, and uh, make sure that there's not any irritation of the vag vaginal wall uh, from the pessary since it is a foreign body. Dr. Abley says women can have a pessary for the rest of their lives if they want, and she makes sure that every pessary is a fit when first getting one. 
sometimes they can feel that, oh, it feels different because the organs have shifted, uh, but it should not be an uncomfortable feeling. If it's uncomfortable, it's not the right fit. She also comments that pessaries are for all women of all ages and says there should be no stigma about it. Especially younger ones who are able to manage it themselves and find out that, yeah, I can take it out on my own and it doesn't uh, make a big difference on my life uh, and it makes my symptoms better. I think that resolves a lot of people's hesitancies about it. So we had a little side conversation about pessaries here. Something that requires maintenance yes. and maybe not always the best permanent solution for everybody, right. Lauren, right. you were saying, yeah. They, they can be used indefinitely, but it does require attention. And yeah. so they do need to be cleaned. You know, you, you really shouldn't be sexually active when they're in unless you can take it out yourself. The problem is most women who pessaries would be their best option are older and right. so they're not going to be able to take it in and out um, themselves. I do have some women who say, hey, you know, I want to do surgery, but life is not going to permit that for the next several months. Mm -hmm. I need something temporary. I think a pessary is great in yeah. those situations. Great. Great. We'll start a little bit more about treatment options for incontinence. Let's start with medications. Maybe not your guys' favorite topic, but like that's my <laughs> no, world, right? No, absolutely. No. Um, let's. I guess let's talk about. Let's go back to prostate stuff mm -hmm. too, because med medications we use often for prostate stuff. So what's kind of first line when we're talking about if we think an enlarged prostate is contributing right. to so urinary symptoms? If um, for men who are having lower urinary tract symptoms mm -hmm. that. The history and the you know laboratory values certainly seem to indicate that this is a prostate issue. Everybody gets a trial of usually um, an alpha blocker is what mm -hmm. we call tamsulosin is probably mm -hmm. the most common one that we use and and it starts with a trial of that. It's a nice cheap medication. It's mm -hmm. real very safe and you know frequently just a pill a day has guys just really delighted with yeah. the, their quality of life improvement, mm -hmm. they empty their bladder better, and for most people we're able to stop there and I can just say, okay, well I'll see you once a year, we'll keep you refilled mm -hmm. and, you know, go from there. Yeah. Some guys, uh, for because of their anatomy or how long it's been going on, the medicines um, aren't doing it. Mm -hmm. um, there are some other medicines we can try. Uh, if the, usually if the alpha blockers aren't doing it, you're really looking probably not always, but usually moving on to a procedure. Sure. And, um, but I mean, we do have great medical therapies and mm -hmm. some guys will say, I'll never do a procedure, but we're able to get them taken care of with the medicine and that's great and very yeah. rewarding. Yeah, yeah. And then kind of different classes of medicines that we might use for other types of incontinence. What, I guess let's talk about urge incontinence. Sure. What do we have in our bag for urge incontinence? So probably if you ask someone else, they'd say we have all these drugs. I think we have two. And I, I exclusively <laughs> use the beta agonists just because they do not cause dementia. And as we know with the anticholinergics, there's a much higher increased risk of dementia. I have pretty much taken them out of practice. Um, I try mm -hmm. to get people off of them. Not only that, they're causing dry mouth, constipation. Yeah. Your mouth is dry, now you're drinking more water, now you're going to the bathroom more. So I, even though there are seven or so anticholinergics, I hate them all, I don't yeah. use them. So um, oxybutynin would be the most common one that we see. Ditropan, yeah. you know, the other yeah. name, um, mm -hmm. Detrol, Vesicare, Sanctura, Enablus, yeah. all of these things. And and I do, they do help some people. Mm -hmm. And as long as you understand that after the age of 55, especially in women, we know there's data that it causes dementia. If someone's able to understand that and accept that risk, 
I'm totally fine with it if it's helping you. I just won't be the one writing that medication. Mm. Um, I much prefer Merbetric or Gymtessa as the newer one. Gymtessa, I think, when it goes generic, is going to change so many lives. Mm. Right now, it can be very cost yeah. prohibitive, and so that tends to be the main issue with yeah. it. But it's a wonderful drug with very few side effects, and it's very safe. Yeah. And, so, and is Mirbetric less cost prohibitive, or it still kind of pretty depends. costly? Yeah. It, it can still be costly, but oftentimes Mirbetric is better covered by insurance. So they're both ex okay. expensive, but they won't even allow you to take the Gemtessa. Yeah. Um, Mirbetric's main side effects would be headaches and high and a raising of blood pressure. Okay. Usually, it's okay even mm -hmm. in someone who has high blood pressure as long as it's well controlled. But we do monitor that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you know, we we do find a lot of people because of that cost end up moving on to third line therapies, not because the medication didn't sure. work, but because they can't can't afford it, right. which is really unfortunate. Yeah, and I mean, the only not costly drugs right. are the ones you kind of talk about Are terrible, yes. And, and that, you know, I tell people, almost, everyone has side effects. I mean, everybody right. has dry mouth if right. they take oxybutynin, yeah, yeah. right? Like, oh, it's, yeah. I don't think it's possible to not. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 interesting. And then, any other medical options that I'm missing when it comes to incontinence, or we exhausted that? I mean, there's not a lot. Not really medicine. Yeah. There's no medications for stress incontinence that are approved mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, there, go, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, well, I guess for completeness sake, yeah. you know, uh, Gemtessa, Merbetric, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we will use those in men, even sure. with enlarged prostate, yep. the overactive bladder component of that. Mm -hmm. Well, and you didn't mention Cialis, which well, and that was Well, and that was the other thing. So actually, there's good data to show that um, for men who don't tolerate Flomax or something, or if using them in conjunction with Flomax, uh, Cialis, daily Cialis, a low dose. Um, daily Cialis, which is, you may know that more from its um, mm -hmm. use in erectile dysfunction, which was where it was more initially used. Mm -hmm. uh, it also can have significant benefits in uh, lower urinary tract symptoms in men. Okay, so, regardless of its cause or primarily in uh, BPH, would you say? It, it, usually BPH, it's yeah. a smooth muscle relaxant. Okay. Um, yeah. it, it works very well, yeah. Yeah, interesting. So some medical options. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's also about how patient a guy wants to be with it, sure. too, is, you know, if he's miserable and he tried one mm -hmm. medicine or two meds, he's like, I need to move on, I, you know, right. that we need to take care of this. So, but you know, like I always say, if it's a quality of life issue, if you want to keep working the medical route, I'm happy to work with yeah. you and tinker around with it, but, you know, it's all about the bother. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then I guess let's move on and talk about, um, we'll do surgery last. Let's talk about some office procedures and some sort of, of the le less invasive stuff. So there's one main treatment for urgent incontinence and one for stress incontinence that are okay. less invasive. So for stress incontinence, we have bulking agents. And these have evolved a lot over the years and there's a new one out. It's been in Europe for about a decade or so, but it's been in the United States for three years and, and I love it. It's called Bulkamid and so it's about 97% water it's like a filler for the urethra. And so we, we numb the urethra, and then with a small camera, just inject some, some medicine to plump the urethra up to try to increase that pressure so that less urine leaks out. Mm. It's not a cure. You're probably not going to be bone dry, but we see about a 50 to 85% improvement. And some women are totally dry. I just try not to set that expectation. Sure. You don't wanna um, disappoint, but it's really great. It's you're in and out in five minutes. We give you a little laughing gas, mm -hmm. um, and you could go straight to the gym if you wanted. So there's no downtime. You can pretty much get back to your regular activities. It's great for women who are not done having kids, who sure. are bothered, or for women who just prefer not to have surgery. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you have surgery and you're still, you're not perfectly dry and you want an adjunct, or maybe you 
want to view it as a stepping stone to surgery. Sure. I always present surgery and the office treatment as you can choose one or you know, um, or you can try one first and then go to the other. There's no right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so and so like how long do you have to repeat that every so, so often? In general, it's kind of a one and done. You can mm-hmm. have what's called a top up where we do a second injection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done a, a few a handful of those. In general, after two, you're probably not going to get much more improvement. Sure. But the trials that were conducted in Europe at seven years, there were still durable results. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's just because the trial ended. It wasn't that you know they're going to yeah. stop working yeah. after seven years. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing them for three years and seeing patients back, and they still seem to be doing really well. So yeah. it's certainly, I think, what I would nice start option. with. Yeah. 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 Any other office procedures that we that are short of going Botox. to the operating room? Yeah. How about well, how about Botox? Yeah. For that? So in Botox. both populations, men and women, yeah. there are select patients, probably used more commonly in women, but uh-huh. I, have, I have some guys who have done well with Botox, and basically Botox works. Uh, obviously, well, most people know it probably from hearing people getting Botox in their face. Sure. Uh, it par- Botox paralyzes muscle, okay, mm-hmm. and your bladder is also a muscle, and so if your bladder is squeezing too much and spasming by injecting that Botox, we're able to relax the bladder and alleviate many of those symptoms. Uh, some people it works wonderful. The downside of the Botox, just like for people who get Botox in their face, they have to do it again. Yeah. The, the, the um, effect wears off. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at at least every three months sure. of redoing that. But once again, if it's... Is that three to ten, I'd Three say. to ten, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd say six or so. Yeah. Six is very average. Yeah. And so like, where does the injection go? How do you do that in <laughs> well, the it's, office? So it's Help a flexible scope that goes in through the urethra. Okay. Um, we That's why bas- we do it more in women. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we inject it throughout the bladder, um, okay. small little samples throughout the bladder, and um, okay. usually it's done in about two minutes. And, and we use numbing jelly ahead of yeah. time, so it's it's very well tolerated. Yeah. You know, I think another reason why we use it, tend to use it more in women, is because there is a slightly higher risk of retention in mm-hmm. men. Sure. And so it's, it's pretty rare. I quote about 1% for my patients, and so the need to catheterize is very, very rare. And I know mm-hmm. that scares a lot of people off, but 99% of people do not have to do that. Sure. And, and it, it comes down to patient selection. Sure, you know, yeah. if somebody's emptying their bladder well, uh-huh. well, that's less of a concern than somebody who's carrying around, right. you know, 200 milliliters, 300 milliliters. Yeah, exactly. Great. Okay. Um, okay. So I guess let's let's go to surgery. Okay. Um, I mean, so surgery is like that's a really general term because it really depends on what problem you're treating, right? So I guess let's talk about your typical stress incontinence patient. So the the laughing, sneezing incontinence. Yes. What are you usually offering those patients, and what factors does that depend on? Absolutely. So you know. If a patient's had prior pelvic radiation, that's one thing to consider. If they're pregnant or planning to have more kids, that's another thing. But for 99% of women, if they want to have surgery, it's going to be a sling. Mm-hmm. Um, slings are polypropylene mesh, not the the mesh that got pulled from the market for pelvic the, floor prolapse. Right, yeah, right. Okay. They are absolutely <laughs> safe and effective. I would I would recommend one for my mother or my grandmother if they needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a 15-minute procedure. It supports the urethra so that it's not so hypermobile, very safe, and lasts at least for 10 to 15 years. I've seen patients who, they were 25 years out from a sling. Obviously, I didn't do that one, but but I think, you know, if I needed a sling, I would absolutely have one. Mm -hmm. And recovery for that? Pretty. I say six weeks, no heavy lifting, no sex, but we don't want you to be a couch potato. I let people do, you know, biking or lightweights or elliptical, things like that. So, 
you can pretty much bounce back to your normal activities relatively mm -hmm. quickly. Yeah, yeah. And how about, I guess let's go back to, we were talking about prostate and, right. and if people aren't, either aren't tolerating or having enough symptom improvement on medications, what do we, what can we offer them right. in that way? So I guess in, you know, we've been talking incontinence and yeah. I mentioned early on that there are two kind of, you know, stress incontinence, urgent incontinence. Uh, if we're talking about stress incontinence, like mm -hmm. we were mentioning kind of in the, you know, to work in parallel here, you know, those are the patients who maybe had their prostate removed for sure. cancer. So this, the way we would surgically treat that is very different than somebody who has an enlarged prostate right. and having leakage like that. So we do have great treatments for men who had a, their prostate removed and are having that stress incontinence. Uh, we're able to put a sphincter, which basically goes around the urethra and can compress it, and on demand we can relieve that compression. Patient can urinate, and then that coaptation will restore. Sphincter. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And there are also slings in men that we can do to, once okay. again, same idea to support that urethra mm -hmm. and give it a little more resistance. And those are kind of for the guys who just have very mild leakage. Mm -hmm. um, Surgical options for the man who has more urge incontinence from the, kind of more of the lower urinary tract symptoms as a consequence of an enlarged prostate. There's the kind of gold standard that a lot of guys have heard around having coffee at the you know, local <laughs> gas station. Uh, the rotor-rooter job mm -hmm. or a transurethral resection of the prostate, mm -hmm. that's the gold standard and still a wonderful treatment for uh, a lot of men, but we do have um, a bunch of other treatments that have come out, you know, um, in the last 10 years. And um, but what I always tell guys, we have a lot of tools in our toolbox, but we need to figure out what makes the most sense for you. What are your goals? Because each treatment has different success rates for different sure. types of anatomy. Um, how bad are your symptoms? Mm -hmm. um, so, and that's really an informed discussion with your physician about what makes the most sense for you and your expectations, but most of them we can do, many of them we can do same day, some are overnight in the hospital, but all, most all of them are through the urethra, no incisions, mm -hmm. and guys are getting back to their activity relatively quickly, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, yeah. Um. I, and then I guess let's talk about urge incontinence. What can we do for urge incontinence? So surgically we have interstem, which is great, or I should say neuromodulation. Mm -hmm. um, and the great thing about neuromodulation is it's testable and reversible. So we now are able to test it in the office with the same results as when we used to test it in the operating room. Mm -hmm. So a little laughing gas again, some numbing medicine, we float electrodes under the skin to stimulate the bowel and bladder nerves try it out for a week, it would simulate what the actual device would be like. And again, we're looking for about a 50% reduction in symptoms. The great thing about neuromodulation is it's not only for overactive bladder and urge incontinence, but it can help with fecal incontinence mm -hmm. or leakage of stool and even urinary retention as long as it's not obstructive. So if, if someone had retention not from an enlarged prostate, sure. for example, they could benefit from interstem. If it works, it's about a 15 minute procedure under sedation, you know, typically no breathing tube, mm -hmm. you're, you're out same day. Um, and those, the new batteries are lasting 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. so, so is that something where a device is under the skin somewhere on the body, absolutely. like many other devices? Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's literally a pacemaker for the bladder, yeah. made by the same company that designed the pacemaker yeah. for the heart. Interesting. Yeah. Any other urge incontinence stuff that we should know as far as that, that that's pretty great. Well, we also have tibial Otherwise. nerve stimulation. Mm. I think it's, and that's an office-based procedure, so I should have mentioned that previously. It's just not very commonly used, at mm -hmm. least here at my practice. The main reason being it requires 
such a time commitment. It's mm -hmm. 30 minutes once a week for 12 weeks and then once a month indefinitely. No and your results are very comparable to medication. As you know, being a physician mm -hmm. in South Dakota, a lot of our patients are driving yeah. from far mm -hmm. away. That's just not feasible. Yeah. Um, and so I have a handful of patients who really love their tibial nerve stimulation and it's great for them, but just not something we use a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. all right, great. Well, the pelvic floor muscles support the bladder, uterus, and bowel. They prevent incontinence and prolapse of the bladder and bowel and are also important in sexual function. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower spoke to a pelvic floor specialist about the importance of her role. Monica Hart is a physical therapist with Avera who helps patients with their pelvic floor. And those muscles are found in all of us, male and female alike, and they help control like our bowel and our bladder uh, function, and they also help with sexual function, and if they have a problem, you might develop some pain. Dr. Har sees patients that have troubles with urinary incontinence, bladder problems, bowel movement troubles, and just pain in their pelvic floor. So they will have pain in their pelvic floor, muscle spasming. This pain could include directly in the pelvic floor and might affect sexual function, but it also could include hip pain and back pain um, because where these muscles are, are located are connected to everything else in that area. She says the most important function of the pelvic floor muscles is the ability to relax. Often this is forgotten when we're talking about pelvic floor muscles, but when you sit down to go to the bathroom, you need your pelvic floor muscles to be able to relax in order to eliminate urine and to eliminate bowel movements. Uh, so often that is something that we would be working on with exercises. The first thing Dr. Hart teaches patients is breathing exercises. Breathing in causes your pelvic floor to relax or drop down, just like if you were on a trampoline and it went downward. And then breathing out, doing an active Kegel as you breathe out or contraction and lifting up is like that trampoline jumping up in the air and your pelvic floor has to do both. After breathing, strengthening exercises like Kegels occur. Eventually, after patients do better with the exercises, Dr. Har adds in complex movements to test the patients. Can you sit in a chair, do a pelvic floor contraction or Kegel, hold that squeeze while you're also exhaling your breath and stand up. This is gonna give your body the most support that it needs to do functional activities. Dr. Har says pelvic floor physical therapy isn't complete without retraining the muscles to work properly and says if the two aren't working together, it's a failure. And what about when I go to the bathroom and I have urgency or frequency, how might I use my pelvic floor to help control those urges so that I can recreate or reestablish new, better habits so that my bowel and bladder function isn't running my life anymore and instead I'm able to do what I want to do and bowel and bladder function just um, is kind of a thing that happens without me thinking about it. So I think let, let's transition into another pelvic floor topic, which is prolapse. We touched on it before. Let's talk about surgery for pelvic floor prolapse, I guess. Absolutely. We heard about pessaries. Right. Maybe there's some more definitive options. Absolutely. Or, and yeah. so I, I think of prolapse surgery in kind of two categories, abdominal prolapse surgery and vaginal prolapse surgery. Um, we used to do you know, either vaginal hysterectomies or open hysterectomies for everyone, and then laparoscopy came around. Now with robotics, it is 
very easy to do a great prolapse repair in little to no time. And so if the uterus is still in place, we typically will remove that unless a woman wants to continue having kids. We probably wouldn't recommend prolapse surgery at that point. Um, and so we do a hysterectomy. I like to leave the cervix as long as pap smears have always been normal. Mm -hmm. um, it helps to maintain good sexual function and keep the, mm -hmm. the normal length of the vagina. In contrast, if you do prolapse repair vaginally, you do a hysterectomy, you're automatically shortening the vagina, cutting off that mm -hmm. cervix, and so you're inherently going to change things. Mm -hmm. um, a sacrocolpopexy is kind of the gold standard of care. Um, it's about five minimally invasive incisions. We do these same day now. You're home within a few hours after surgery, and same thing, six weeks, no heavy lifting, no sex, but it's one of my favorite surgeries to do because you start the case and you do a pelvic exam and there's a big bulge falling down, mm -hmm. you finish and everything looks more or less normal, you know, age appropriate normal. We're not mm -hmm. trying to make everyone 18 again, <laughs> um, but it's, it's very rewarding and people tend to be very happy. Mm -hmm. And does it matter what structures are prolapsing that are as far as candidacy Absolutely. for the surgery, the bladder, Absolutely. the rectum? So if it's just the bladder or just the rectum, you can get by with a vaginal cystocele uh -huh. repair or rectocele repair. What I've found is that if the bladder is falling, it can really only fall so far without pulling the top of the vagina or the uterus mm -hmm. with it or the uterus pushing it down. And so while the sacrocolpopexy really is a procedure for the top of the vagina or for the cervix or uterus, um, it will also address a, a bladder repair if you're able to, to do the dissection low enough. Mm. And so I think for most women, if they have a stage two or greater, and that's really when you feel bother is at stage two, mm -hmm. they're probably going to be candidates for a robotic repair. Now, mm -hmm. if it's just an isolated rectocele, that would be much better managed through the vagina. Mm -hmm. Either way, same day, in and out, minor recovery. Yeah. Great. Yeah. That's good news for patients that have struggled with that. Some people don't come in for years. I know, it's really people sad. People really suffer with this. It's really sad. Um, well, let's move on, I guess, and talk a little bit about some hormones and how they're related to urologic and other types mm -hmm. of health. Um, we see this a lot as people get older. A lot of people in my practice ask me a lot of questions about hormones. And so in men, and usually it's about testosterone right, are the questions right. I'm getting. So what role does testosterone have in the body? And what, I mean, what, what do you feel like are the misconceptions about testosterone out there? And how should we be addressing testosterone for men who have questions right. about it? Well, it's, it is kind of a, I don't know, I don't want to say polarizing, but a hot button issue with some people. But, you know, the reality is, is testosterone is the primary defining hormone of the man, mm -hmm. okay? And women have testosterone as well, and mm -hmm. um, men have estrogen as well, but really what's what drives um, so many things in men is testosterone. Uh, so things like sex drive, energy, sleep quality, mood, a lot of that can tie into a test uh, or, um, issues with those areas can tie into a low testosterone. Mm -hmm. You know, in my opinion, any man who is suffering from low sex drive, low energy, especially as they're, you know, getting up in years, it's, it's never a bad idea to check that testosterone and see where it is. And if low, uh, and no contraindicating factors, you know, mm -hmm. uh, trial of testosterone replacement therapy to get them at a physiologic level just to where your body kind of wants to be. And, you know, that being said, you know, we treat patients, not lab values. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know what everybody's, you know, testosterone, you know, what they run best at. But mm -hmm. it, it, so it is a little bit of tinkering to see what gets them moving. But it's also important to do it safe because just like, you know, right. a, 
anything that can be abused can be pushed too far. And so, but I think, you know, done under the guidance of an experienced clinician who does it a lot, it's very safe and effective for certain men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there, what are contraindications? Like who should not take testosterone? You know, the big thing, you know, we really focus in on as urologists especially is, you know, men who do have prostate cancer. Right. Uh, prostate cancer is fueled by testosterone and mm -hmm. one of the things we'll sometimes do to treat prostate cancer is give medicine that totally eliminates a man's right. testosterone. So the big thing uh, we really dial in on is, you know, checking a PSA with it, mm -hmm. um, you know, tracking a PSA for a man who's on testosterone therapy. Um, there are studies that say men who have had test prostate cancer that's successfully treated, that it can safely be administered, but, uh, you know, there are disagreements among some clinicians with that, but I think, you know, if it's done appropriately, it can be done safely yeah. in select patients. Yeah. But it, it is something that, you know, Everybody isn't deficient in testosterone, right. uh, despite what some commercials would like you to believe. But uh, there are a lot of patients out there who have, I've seen a great boost in their quality of life from testosterone supplementation. Right, so. right, done safely and with mm -hmm. good. Yeah, water, just right? like anything, yeah. you, you know, any medicine can be. Yeah. Yeah. Dangerous, right? In my world, I find patients are surprised to hear that there are some some things that can cause low testosterone. So, like untreated sleep apnea is mm -hmm. something I always talk to people about, or if they're on chronic opioids, that's another thing that we find. Well, and can really you know the big thing is that. is you know we are in the midst of an obesity yeah. epidemic. Uh, fat cells do convert mm -hmm. testosterone to estrogen. Mm -hmm. So, you know. It's not always testosterone replacement, but it's, let's look at the whole picture. Yeah. Well, if we lose 20 pounds, we get you exercising, all of a sudden your testosterone levels are better, Yeah. your mood's better. Right. And so it's all about taking the whole picture of the mm -hmm. patient. And overall, it's like, I always tell my guys, well, first we gotta do the things that we know we should be doing, but right. we maybe aren't doing. You know, balanced diet, get some movement, mm -hmm. get sleep. Yeah. Right. So, but that being said, it's it's taking everything into account mm -hmm. and coming up with an individualized plan. Yeah. Good. And I I'm guessing hormones come into effect in your world a lot too, and women's pelvic health in particular. Yes. So, like, tell us about how menopause changes a, a woman's pelvis. Yes. What absolutely. Happens? You know, so evolutionarily, once you're done having babies. Not necessarily primed to to have sex or to want to have sex anymore, and so I see a lot of women who have pain with intercourse, mm -hmm. who have vaginal dryness, and even we call it genitourinary symptoms of menopause. And mm -hmm. so some of those urgency frequency symptoms can actually be alleviated with vaginal estrogen. Um, I am, as a urologist, I do not do hormone replacement in mm -hmm. terms of the patches and the pills. However, I prescribe a lot of vaginal estrogen, yeah. which is very, very safe. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no evidence that vaginal estrogen would cause a primary tumor or a recurrence of any sort of cancer, breast cancer. I have patients come in and say, well, I can't use that because my sister had breast cancer. Absolutely not. You right. absolutely can and should use it. It's oh, very, very safe. Yeah. It's such a great treatment adjunct and it's amazing how urinary symptoms can improve, mm -hmm. sexual function well, can improve, mm -hmm. recurrent bladder infections, oh my gosh, if I could just right. have a billboard that says if you're having recurrent bladder infections, <laughs> use vaginal estrogen, I'd be half as busy, but you right. know, um, mm -hmm. so it's, it's, I call it the sunscreen of the vagina. It's great, you have to use it, you have to use it regularly and forever, and if you do, mm -hmm. your life will be better. Yeah, that's really good information though, because I think people do 
extrapolate what they know about a lot of systemic estrogen to yeah. vaginal estrogen. And we think it doesn't get into the bloodstream much right. at all as far and as very the minimal levels. Yeah. And maybe at first as that tissue is so thin, but mm -hmm. as it starts to repair and there's more collagen and elastin and blood flow, yeah. very, very minimal absorption. You yeah. know, Kelly, mm -hmm. interesting thing, you know, obviously urologist couple here, mm -hmm. you know, uh, obviously as a male, I treat a lot of erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these guys, they finally work up the courage to go in and, you know, say, hey, I'm having issues in this area. Uh, it's been going on for years and we have great medicine and great treatments for mm -hmm. erectile dysfunction. Well, frequently, all of a sudden now it's been, you know, they're at a different stage of life. Right. They, you know, start being intimate again. Well, the vagina has changed. Uh -huh. So now all of a sudden they're, the, the missus is floating into my wife's clinic yeah. for, to, to discuss vaginal <laughs> dryness. Issues, so, yeah. but they, you know, these things you, you kind of have to, you, things you come across that, yeah. you know, uh, father time is undefeated as I tell my patients, <laughs> but we do have uh, some pretty good chess moves to kind of counteract yeah. a lot so of that. So bring stuff. it up, like talk to your doctor. Absolutely. There's talk, No, don't, do. trust me, especially if you're talking to a urologist, it takes a lot to make That's us blush. That's what I tell people. Like, you know, yeah, we've heard you it all, not, I mean, you, you, you can't bother us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've had so many patients come in and said, oh, your husband um, sent me to you and I'm looking for referring notes. I'm like, I don't, I don't see anything. He said, oh no, we were in with my husband yeah. and he had erectile dysfunction. <laughs> and he said, well, is your vagina dry? You need to go see my wife. So, well, I'm glad you're here. Yeah. We can, we can yeah. help you guys out. And so. I love that you brought up recurrent UTIs. I, I feel like I have so many patients who recurrently feel like they have a UTI yes. and it's not a UTI. And eventually I'd say, you know, maybe we should try some estrogen. 100%, yeah. I couldn't agree more. Other kind of tips and tricks, I like to check a mycoplasma or a urea plasma, especially mm. in younger sexually active women. Sometimes if you can treat that and treat their sexual partners while it's not an STD, mm -hmm. um, urinary tract infection symptoms can go away if that was the cause. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, this is why it's so important to get a urinalysis each time yes. because bladder cancer can look like this. And mm -hmm. so sure. we as urologists can't stand when patients are just having antibiotics thrown at them and no one's checking their urine because maybe you look and there's blood under the microscope Absolutely. and they have a tumor. Right. And so that's why, you know, it's so critical Complete I think evaluation. to mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, good. Let's I guess we got a few minutes left. We'll piggyback off of the blood in the urine. So blood in the urine, not normal, like even nope. if it's coming and going, right? right? Like what what needs to happen if someone's having blood in their urine? So there's two types of or I guess we classify mm -hmm. it as urologists two separate ways. There's microscopic hematuria mm -hmm. which is it's yes you give a sample to your doctor the lab looks at it under the microscope they see red blood cells you've never seen red blood cells sure. okay so that's microscopic hematuria then there's gross hematuria that is you're seeing it in the your urine you go to the bathroom it's there um, ultimately both types though the microscopic hematuria sometimes what well, everybody gets a cystoscopy more yeah. or less everybody gets a look in the bladder because and for gross hematuria, for sure you're getting a CT scan. Mm -hmm. Now we try and um, the American Urologic Association with microscopic hematuria has tried to um, do more risk stratification and okay. we can do ultrasounds sometimes to reduce the radiation mm -hmm. or if, you, um, if you're higher risk then we do CT scans as well. But, mm -hmm. And sometimes it is, it's not normal, but sometimes, especially for microscopic hematuria, sometimes some people just have a little blood in their urine. Sure. But the way we approach it is we're going to rule out the bad stuff. Yeah. I want to make sure you don't have bladder cancer. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure you don't have a big kidney stone that's causing issues or a kidney tumor or mm -hmm. a ureteral tumor. Um, so that's kind of the way we're thinking of it. And sometimes, yeah, we don't find a cause. Mm -hmm. But I, like I say, we ruled out the bad, the bad things. Stuff. Yep. So. Yep. 
yeah, you gotta, you gotta get some work up. Oh yeah, it yeah. absolutely needs to be yeah. evaluated. Yeah, and I find in my, some women, it can be challenging to sort out, is this from the bladder right. or is it from the uterus? Is it postmenopausal bleeding? Yes. And um, I've had, people aren't always sure. No, and I've definitely had patients who, they've had a normal cystoscopy and get a CT scan and I'm like, eh, you know, maybe, mm -hmm. let's get a transvaginal ultrasound. Let's just make sure we're not missing sure. anything and we've caught uterine cancer yeah. that way. Yeah. And so, you know, but we're always so happy when it's normal. Oh my gosh. And they say, well, what caused it? I don't know, but you don't have cancer. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. great. Yeah. Enjoy your yeah. weekend. Yeah. You know, we can't give you a definitive answer, right. but it's good news. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, we'll be back after this. Have you downloaded and subscribed to the Prairie Doc Podcast? Health professionals join host Laura Ellsworth each week to discuss and take questions about timely medical information. Search Prairie Doc on Apple, Spotify, SoundClouds, or wherever you find podcasts today. Urinalysis, or testing of the urine, has ancient origins dating back to the time of Hippocrates and beyond. Although we have evolved in our methodology of studying the urine and our understanding of the meaning of its characteristics, we do still rely on urinalysis in making clinical diagnoses frequently in medicine. In centuries past, the tools of urinalysis were blunt and primarily involved human senses of sight, smell, and taste. Yeah, taste. Ancient physicians noted that sediment in the urine often correlated with fever, the sediment in question probably being white blood cells. Bubbles in the urine might portend kidney disease, which we know to be true if the bubbles are caused by excessive protein in the urine. And diabetes mellitus was generally known to be present in cases of excessive sweet tasting urine. In modern laboratories, we test urine using chemical assays and by looking at urine sediment under a microscope. What might we be looking for when we ask our patients to provide a urine sample? Red blood cells can be present in a variety of conditions, including trauma to the urinary tract, such as from infection or kidney stones, tumors of the urologic tract, and diseases affecting the microscopic structures of the kidney, among other things. White blood cells are more specific to urinary tract infections, though they can be seen in some other types of kidney injury as well. We look routinely for protein in the urine of patients with diabetes or known kidney disease. Protein in the urine is typically the first sign of kidney damage from chronic diseases like diabetes. And the amount of protein in the urine of a patient with chronic kidney disease can help us understand prognosis and whether certain medications are working. Glucose is found in the urine if a person has very high blood glucose or if they are taking certain medications. Numerous other chemical tests of the urine can help us to diagnose selective medical conditions. As a physician in the modern area, luckily I have never tasted my patient's urine like Hippocrates and his cohorts would have, but I do use urinalysis every day to help me diagnose and care for my patients. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Joe Toome and Dr. Lauren Wood Toome for volunteering their time to help us learn more about urinary incontinence. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. 
Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of health information based on science, built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Myths are stories that are based on tradition. Some may have factual origins, while others are completely fictional. Medical Mythbusters, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. My name is Jennifer May. I'm a rheumatologist in Rapid City, South Dakota. I got involved maybe around 2005. That's when I first started practicing in Rapid City and my former partner introduced me to Rick and actually got me on the on-call show. I think we did a story on gout. Um, and that was my first introduction to Rick and the Prairie Doc sort of concept. And it's a great resource for information. We have a lot of people that live in remote places, they maybe don't have a lot of good access, and we know that there's a lot of misinformation in terms of health information that you can get online, and having a reliable source for people to go to with people they recognize that they might know on the programming I think is really important. Well, I think having anything that isn't tied to an agenda is really important, and so having access to information that you can refer your patient to that you know they're not going to get fees or get their data sold is really important. I think if people want high quality programming from local people, local experts that supports your community, supporting Prairie Doc is the way to go. For more information or to donate, please go to www.prairiedoc.org or mail your donation to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. Thank you for your support. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System. Ophthalmology Limited. South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians. Avera Heart Hospital. First Bank and Trust. Dakota Allergy and Asthma. Vance Thompson Vision. Monument Health. Black Hills Medical Society. Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society. Pier District Medical Society. Sioux Falls District Medical Society. Yankton District Medical Society. Orthopedic Institute. Lake Ponset Sailing Academy. Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy. Dakota Bank. South Dakota American College of Physicians. And Swiftel Communications.